Right, if you would, take your Bibles and open to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, and though our text is going to be verses 1 through 9, there's going to be a good-sized introduction, and we'll have to deal with chapters 8 and 9. Um, as we continue in the study of church membership and the expectations that God has on church members, we are going to talk this morning about giving, and I'm going to keep you a little while. I'm usually pretty short, but I'm not going to be this morning. So if the topic or the timing makes you need to make a line for the door, you can go now because it's going to be less awkward than when you go later. Okay. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 9, says, Moreover, brethren, we do you to wit of the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia, how that in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded unto the riches of their liberality. For to their power I bear record, yea, and beyond their power, they were willing of themselves, praying us with much entreaty that we would receive the gift and take upon us the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. And this they did, not as we hoped, but first gave their own selves to the Lord and unto us by the will of God. Insomuch we desired Titus, that as he begun, as he had begun, so he would also finish in you the same grace also. Therefore, as ye abound in everything, in faith and utterance and knowledge and in all diligence and in your love to us, see that you abound in this grace also. I speak not by commandments but by occasion of the forwardness of others and to prove the sincerity of your love. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you, through his poverty, might be rich. For those of you who are here on Wednesday night, I know it just dealt with one of the Lord's parables in regard to money. I want to assure you it is not my goal to hound you about giving to the church. I don't know that I've preached about personal finances or giving or tithing uh, that often. Proportionally, certainly I've said less about it than the New Testament says about it. And so as we're going through this series on church membership and the expectation that the Lord Jesus has on his disciples and their active involvement in the body of Christ, giving is something that we need to address. Now note, I said giving, not tithing. Doubtlessly, what I am about to say will get me in hot water with a number of people I respect from outside the church, and I'm worried that it will be misunderstood by those who are within the church. So let me just state bluntly up front, because I don't want y'all straining at the sermon the whole time going, what is it that Jason's getting at? I was raised and taught to believe, and for many years taught others to believe, 
that tithing is the standard by which Christians can know whether or not they're giving in a way that satisfies the Lord. In essence, I have been taught and I have taught others that if you're giving 10% of your income, you're giving in a way that is pleasing in the eyes of God. My friends, it is not as simple as that. Now, before you think that Pastor Jason is ready to abolish all standards of giving, you've got to hear me all the way out. I do think that a tithe or giving 10% is a good guide to use when you're facing those choices of, well, how much should I give? The Bible has way too much to say about tithing to ignore that standard. But to treat tithing as if it is a law fails. We... We, we fall into error in that process just like we do in many other ways of life. It is easy to say, you know what, just give me a rule to follow while ignoring that God judges our hearts. In fact, look over at the next chapter, chapter 9, verse 7. All of chapter 8 and 9 is dealing with Christian giving. In chapter 9, verse 7, Paul says, every man according as he purposes in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. What ultimately satisfies God is not a person who says, give me a number and I guess I'll do it. Frankly, for some people, tithing, giving 10% of their income, is more of a struggle than it is for others. For some, giving a tenth is something that they can easily manage to do. And a little begrudgingly, they'll write that check, and I've been telling them for years, you give that 10% and you know that you've satisfied the Lord. When Scripture tells us that the heart of the matter, like many other things, is a matter of the heart. You might give 10% and not be satisfying to the Lord. For some, tithing is a good place to start, but in their heart, they know it's not a place to stop. Okay. Do you know the reason that we stopped passing the offer plate and started using that box in the back? It's because I had a really hard time as we were all up here and I'm facing this direction. You're passing the offering plate. I had a really hard time craning my neck around to see who's giving what. But we've got a little security camera pointed at the offering plate back there and I can just go in my office and review it on Monday morning and see exactly who's giving what. Some of y'all looking at me like, seriously? No, not Seriously. Just a fun way to kind of lead into the disclaimer. I don't know what y'all give. And I don't want to know what y'all give. I will say if there is any person in this room with a more vested interest in what y'all give than me, I don't know who it would be. I mean, so please take it as a sign of sincerity that a full-time pastor whose livelihood and family income is entirely based on the church is standing before the church and saying tithing is not God's standard of righteousness. Believe it or not, I am not preaching on giving because I am interested in what's yours, but because I am interested in what's best for you. You need to take a hard look at your checkbook 
and a long look at your heart and give what you can give cheerfully and lovingly. Love, not law, love is the standard for biblical giving in Christianity. Before dealing with that concept from the text, allow me, like I'm asking your permission, you're a captive audience at this point, to say a couple other things about tithing, because you could come away with only the message that, well, Pastor Jason's against tithing, and that's not really true either. So hear me out. First off, I don't think that we can easily say, we don't have to tithe because tithing is part of the law and we are free from the law. I have heard that a lot over the years. Jesus has fulfilled the law for us and we're free from the law and tithing is law so we don't have to tithe. In reality, tithing predates the law in the Old Testament. The first time we see tithing in scripture is when Abraham gives 10%. He gives a tithe to the righteous king priest Melchizedek in Genesis 14. That was long before the law was given. Tithing predates the law. It was an accepted means where God's people did the right thing in giving long before the law came around. This argument ends up being made by those who want to be free from tithing in order to say, well, there is no standard you can give. You can, you can give or you can not give. You can do whatever it is you want to do. And frankly, that is a silly argument. Being free from the law does not make you free from tithing. And it certainly doesn't make you free from giving. The New Testament's too clear about that. Second, there are people who embrace tithing as a cap on giving. They say, in practice, well, 10% is what I'm required to give. So 10% is what I'm going to give. And you are never going to get any more than that. That is a short-sighted view of what the Old Testament teaches about tithing. Did you know there are actually three tithes in the Old Testament? There was, and you can make a note of this if you want to, we won't go and read it, but there was a tithe to support religious workers. It was often called the Levitical tithe in Numbers chapter 18. And this was an annual tithe in order to provide for the priests. There was a tithe to provide a community fellowship meal, sometimes called the festival tithe. You can read about this in Deuteronomy 14. This was an annual 10% of income. Of course, at that time, that income was, you know, livestock, grain, that kind of thing, in addition to money. And that was given in order to share joy within the community. And then there was a tithe to support the poor, sometimes called the benevolence tithe. That was also in Deuteronomy 14. This was 10% given every third year, and it was kept in a community storehouse to be distributed as needed to poor foreigners and widows and orphans and such. You add those up. God didn't require his people to give 10%. He required 10% to help religious workers, another 10% for a community festival, and every three years, another 10% to help the poor. That's a total of 
23 and a third percent. So anybody who wants to say, well, I'm going to follow the Old Testament tithings a set amount and that's all you're going to get from me. Okay, give 23 and a third percent of your income and I don't think we'll have anything to worry about. Third, even in the Old Testament, tithing was not set as the complete standard of righteousness. I know that most of you are familiar with Malachi chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. God says, Will a man rob God, yet you have robbed me? And you say, Wherein have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings. You are cursed with a curse, for you have robbed me, even this whole nation. The nation was accused by God of robbing God, stealing from him. And when the Lord puts words in their mouth to essentially say, I know that you're going to ask, well, how have we stolen from you? He says that it is in tithes and offerings. Tithe, that set amount, was to be accompanied by a free will offering. What it is that you, even in the Old Testament, purposed in your heart to give. And God tells the nation that they robbed him, they'd stolen from him, not just by withholding a tithe, but by not purposing in their heart to give beyond the tithe. Even in the Old Testament, tithing was not a means by which you could achieve righteousness. Y'all know this to be true. In Luke chapter 18, when Jesus tells the story of the Pharisee and the publican, you know what the Pharisee was praying, right? You remember part of his prayer. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. Was he lying? No. As the story unfolds, we find out very likely he was giving a tithe of all that he possessed, and yet the message of the story was that external obedience will never replace a heart that is genuinely submitted to God in love. Now, as we turn to the text, remember the text, 2 Corinthians chapter 8? I want to use the text as a challenge to you so that your giving measures up to the example here. Actually, that's what the Apostle Paul is doing in this text. You might recall that there were the saints at Jerusalem were experiencing severe poverty due to a drought and due to persecution for their faith. And so Paul is on his way back to Jerusalem. As he goes there, he takes up a collection from the Lord's churches to take with him in order to alleviate the suffering of the saints in Jerusalem. Chapters 8 and 9 in 2 Corinthians he turns his attention to those financial matters in order to encourage the church at Corinth, which the church at Corinth was quite wealthy, to give in accordance to the grace of God and to encourage them, and by extension, to encourage us. He uses some other churches as an example. You'll see in verse 1, he refers to the churches of Macedonia. Macedonia is not a city. Macedonia is a region where there's many cities. And as far as churches that were in Macedonia, there would have been Thessalonica for sure. Berea is probably one of the churches that Paul was mentioning here. Philippi is absolutely one of the churches that Paul's mentioning here. And those poor churches 
were generous in their financial support. In fact, let me just read to you from Philippians chapter 4, where Paul addresses this in his letter when he writes to the church at Philippi. In Philippians 4, verses 14 through 19, he says, You have done well that you shared in my distress. Now you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me concerning giving and receiving, but you only. For even in Thessalonica, you sent aid once and again for my needs. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek fruit that abounds to your account. Indeed, I have all and abound. I am full, having received from Epaphroditus the things sent from you, a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God, and my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches and his glory in Christ Jesus. The church at Philippi and those other churches in Macedonia, they didn't have much but they were generous in what they had. And so as he writes to this relatively wealthy church at Corinth, Paul uses those other churches as an example of what Christian giving should look like. Let's take a look at this text, verses 1 through 9, and here's what we'll see. First off, five aspects of Christian giving from a good example. Then we'll see Paul issues a challenge, And then finally, we'll see he encourages Christian giving based on the supreme example. Okay, that'll be our three points. Five aspects of Christian giving from a good example, then a challenge, and then Christian giving based on the supreme example. The five aspects of Christian giving from a good example are found in verses 1 through 5. Moreover, brethren... We do you to wit of the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia. How that in the great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded unto the riches of their liberality. For to their power I bear record, yea, and beyond their power they were willing of themselves, praying us with much entreaty that we would receive the gift and take upon us the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. And this they did, not as we hoped, but first gave their own selves to the Lord and unto us by the will of God. Those poor churches in Macedonia, it's interesting to me that as Paul sets them as an example, you know what we don't read here? We don't read how much it is that they gave. Paul's discretion is evident in the way that he, just, he doesn't just say, well, those poor churches, they gave me 10,000 denarii to take to Jerusalem. And I expect you to do better than that. He doesn't give a number. He doesn't give a percentage. He only gives an example from the heart of love. So I want you to see in those verses five aspects of Christian giving from their good example. First, Their giving was according to God's grace. Verse 1. Moreover, brothers, we do you to wit of the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia. Paul's saying, brothers, let me make known to you the grace which God has given to the churches of Macedonia. As he uses these churches as an example of giving, he begins by showing 
that they are actually the objects of God's giving, right? Before Paul would ever be able to say something like, you know, look at this big bag of money I got from them. He knows that it really begins with, look how much God's grace has been bestowed on them. They have to be an object of God's giving before they are an instrument of God's giving. In these two chapters about Christian giving in chapters eight and nine, you'll note in verse one, that little word grace comes up and he actually uses that. It has a prominent role in these chapters. It appears 10 times over the course of these two chapters as Paul talks about giving. And there's some subtle nuance to meaning as he uses that word grace. He uses grace to show everything from God's undeserved favor to the simple act of Christian generosity. The way that the Apostle Paul weaves this together would tell us that the generosity that you can see is only a display of the grace of God you can't see. Christian generosity and giving has to start with God's grace. Think about what you know about God and how Paul describes this act of Christian generosity as a gift. You know, so for example, he says in verse four, the church has pleaded with him to accept this gift. Can Paul accept a gift from the churches of Macedonia without it being a gift of God himself? Well, what would James tell us? Every good gift and every perfect gift comes down from above. It is from God. God's giving comes before your giving, right? So you are an object of God's grace to be used as an instrument of God's grace. This first aspect of Christian giving from this good example is their giving was by God's grace. Second, their giving exceeded their comfort level. Look at verses two and three. How that in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded unto the riches of their liberality. For to their power, I bear record, yea, and beyond their power, they were willing of themselves. Paul's telling us the churches at Macedonia did not give because they could. They gave even though they couldn't. Really, it's as simple as that. The apostle pictures them as having severe trials, deep poverty, the depths of poverty. Like, if you would have showed up at their business meeting, their monthly financial statement would have been an oral report because they couldn't afford the paper to print it on. It isn't hard for us to picture this. It wasn't that long ago we talked about the church at Philippi. It's one of these Macedonian churches. So just use as an an example, this church at Philippi. We know some of those folks. What was there? There was a a slave girl who came to Christ, but she remained a slave. There was the Philippian jailer. Hard for me to imagine that he kept his job and his means of support of the family after the jail crumbled due to an earthquake and some of the prisoners were released. There was Lydia, the merchant woman, who was generous, but her finances were probably stretched more and more as the church depended on her generosity. 
All the while, the city as a whole hated them. They, the, the city had tried to murder Paul and Silas before running them out of town, right? So when Paul says they have severe trials, there's a depth of poverty. But in verse two, Paul pictures it like their joy and contentment were overflowing out of empty pockets. Somehow, despite their own problems and the depths of their own poverty, Paul says they abounded unto the riches of their liberality, or said simply, they overflowed in a wealth of generosity. They gave beyond what was comfortable for them. We should not think for a second that we are being generous when we give what is easy to give. That's not generosity. In verse 3, Paul uses the word power, and it simply means ability. So think about what he's saying here. To their ability, and I can tell you, beyond their ability, they were willing to give. How is it that people in the depths of poverty can overflow in generosity? Well, only as the Lord gives them ability. Only as they trust his promises. You know, back in Malachi 3, when we talked about God accusing the nation of having robbed him. You know, immediately after that, he says in Malachi 3, verse 10, bring all the tithes into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and try me or test me now, says Yahweh of hosts. If I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such blessing that there is not enough room for you to receive it. Listen, if all giving begins with God's giving, you have to believe that as God has given to you, you can give, and he's willing to give more so that you can give more. That's the promise. That's the promise of the Lord Jesus. Like, I just want you to picture, if any of y'all have ever been an idiot like me and you're making some recipe and decide more sugar is always better, it just says a cup, but how much can I get into that cup? Right? I'm going to put it in there. I'm going to shake it together. I'm going to shove it down. I'm gonna, it's going to be a heaping cup. Right? This is what Jesus says in Luke 6, 38. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over will be put into your bosom. With the same measure that you use, it shall be measured back to you. Your giving is never going to challenge God's ability to give to you. They gave trusting God in their giving, so they exceeded what would have been any reasonable comfort level. Third, their giving was an expression of love, not law. When we look at their example of giving, we can ask, well, why did they do that? Did Paul go through there and guilt them into it? Not at all. In fact, when Paul saw how much they gave, knowing the situation of those churches, he responded by being ready to hand it back to them. Look at verse 3, the middle of verse 3. They were willing of themselves, praying with us, praying us with much entreaty that we would receive the gift. Right? They were willing of themselves. Nobody would put a guilt trip on them to drag the last coin out of their empty pockets. Now, 
if we were cynical, nobody in here is cynical, right? If we were cynical, we might point out, well, that might be true about the churches in Macedonia that Paul's describing in this, but Paul sure seems to be putting a guilt trip on the church at Corinth as he's writing to them. And then by extension, you might say, Pastor Jason is saying we should give without a guilt trip, and that in itself is a guilt trip. Not at all, and, and, I, and I hope you see this. What Paul is doing is encouraging the church at Corinth by showing them the example of those poor churches. And so by extension, what I'm doing this morning is, is to do the same thing, to try to give encouragement. The last thing that I want to do is try to guilt you into giving. You know, we're, we're not taking up a collection after this. You're going to have plenty of time to prayerfully study this for yourselves. Decide for yourselves how it is that you should receive this and whether or not you should change the way that you give differently in the future. But I want you to see what Paul tells the church at Corinth. We're skipping ahead just a bit. But when he does challenge them, he specifically says in verse 8, I am not speaking by commandment, right? This is not an order. Although in fairness, when the Apostle Paul writes inspired by the Holy Spirit, we're probably justified in not simply dismissing it. But skip ahead a little further into chapter 9. We already talked about verse 7 in chapter 9. Every man, according as he is purposed in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. So Paul's being consistent in these two chapters to say, I don't want to walk away carrying your grudging guilt gift. I'm not issuing orders. Knowing God's grace, purpose in your own heart what it is that you should give, and then give it. Don't do it reluctantly, right? Don't do it begrudgingly. Don't do it because you have to. But God, who judges your heart, doesn't want your your guilt-ridden grudge gift, he wants a cheerful giver. He loves cheerful giving. By the way, if me saying earlier that tithing is not the standard of Christian giving and, and righteousness and that bothered you, can you see where that's coming from here? The example of Christian giving is not giving because of law. It is giving because of love. It is a cheerful heart filled with grace that purposes to give. So first, their their giving was by God's grace. Second, their giving exceeded their comfort level. Third, their giving was an expression of love and not law. Fourth, their giving was focused outward. The end of verse four. And take upon us the fellowship of, of the ministering to the saints. The saints here being described are the people of God that were outside of the churches Paul's describing. Right? The purpose of their giving was for others, not for themselves. So, I want to try to make a fair point from the text here, and I hope you'll hear me. When you bring your financial offerings to the Lord, to his church here, and you put them in that box, clearly some of it gets used to 
pay the light bill, right? We're not sitting in the dark this morning because y'all have given. Some of it pays Andrew and I as pastors. Some of it goes to other utilities, right? We have a, a variety of stuff that needs to be accomplished as the practical needs of the church. But ultimately, the goal should not just be to give in order to sustain the church. That benefits you. Even if that's not the way you think about it, you benefit from the pastors, you benefit from the lights, you benefit from the air conditioning. thought at least I'd hear one amen on that one this morning. The goal of giving, as Paul describes it here, is beyond ourselves. It should be to give in order to meet the needs of God's people, not our church as a whole, right? And I'm not saying this because I think it's something that you neglect. I think y'all are generous in this area when called upon. You give love offerings for people with medical bills. You give generously in the past for those who have lost things in house fires. We send money to support missionaries. We send extra money when those missionaries have some special need that come up. So it's not that I'm saying this because there's some big fault in this. I just want to be precautionary that we don't fall into that simple error that I have seen other places. There are Christians who will give generously to their church because, let's say, the church as a whole has agreed on some special project, right? We want a, we want a nicer building. We want a coffee bar. We want some fancy stained glass windows and luminescent praying hands, right? There's, there's some things that we want. And that's okay. That's not generous Christian giving. True generosity is giving in a way that's focused outward. It is ministering to other saints. Later in the next chapter, Paul brings this up again. In chapter 9, verse 12, he says, For the administration of this service not only supplies the want of the saints, or the needs of the saints, what's lacking with them, but is abundant also by many thanksgivings unto God. For our giving to be generous Christian giving, it must be for something outside of ourselves. The need of other saints and thanksgiving to God. Fifth, their giving prioritized the Lord Jesus. Verse five. And this they did, not as we hoped, but first gave their own selves to the Lord and unto us by the will of God. Verse 5 requires a couple of quick explanations. First off, when Paul says, they didn't do this as we hoped, that sounds negative, like he was almost disappointed in what they did. That's not how Paul means it. When he says they didn't do what he was hoping, he's saying they went beyond what he was hoping, right? They exceeded all his expectations. And the way they exceeded his expectations was, Paul describes it in the end of verse 5, first gave their own selves to the Lord and unto us by the will of God. Now I've heard this explained as, Paul saying what happened in those churches is that first they gave their regular tithes and offerings to the Lord and only then did they take up this special collection for the Apostle Paul. That might be what Paul means. 
I, I don't for a minute believe that's what Paul means. What he's saying is that these churches exceeded expectations because they were first, not first in order of events, but first in the sense of primarily, primarily their giving was to the Lord, it wasn't to me. Right? They were wholly dedicated to the Lord Jesus. They first, they primarily gave themselves to the Lord. Their attitude was, I'm the Lord's man. I'm a servant. I've been bought with a price. I've been purchased by the blood of the Lord Jesus. And when you have that attitude, when you truly have that attitude, you are less likely to hold in reserve something for yourself when you're giving because there is in your mind no yourself. Right? You are the Lord's. And this is what Paul's saying. Everything is his. Right? They exceeded expectations because their primary, their first, their, their supreme consideration was that they were giving for the Lord Jesus. And so it's easier to say, well, of course the Lord can have the money in my wallet. The money's his. The wallet's his. The pocket and the pants that I carry the wallet in are his. Everything is his. There's nothing that's just me. This is what it means to give generously by prioritizing the Lord Jesus. This has to happen first. This this change of mind so that you are not your own and what you have is not your own. You're, You're entirely given to him. That has to come to to you, that change of mind where you are solely given to the Lord has to come before you can give to the Lord. Listen, can I say it this way? I don't care how big a check you write and put in that box back there. It does not matter what the number is on it or even percentage-wise what it reflects of your paycheck. If you're putting a big gift in the box back there and still withholding some little part of your life, you've got some little thing of yourself that you're holding back, what you're putting back there is not enough. It will never be enough. God rightly demands, and and we know this, God rightly demands that we love him and serve him with all our heart and all our soul and all our mind, all our strength. You withhold any of that, you can't write a check big enough to make up for it. If you want to reduce that to a dollar amount or a percentage, then you're, you're thinking essentially that God's willing to settle for what's yours when God's clear that he wants you. Okay, I'm glad the introduction's over. Actually, that's point one of three. The next two shouldn't take us too long. The first point in verses one through five, five aspects of Christian giving from a good example. Now in verses six and seven and eight, I want you to see Paul uses that example of the Macedonian churches in order to issue a challenge to the wealthier church at Corinth. Verse 6 is through 8. Insomuch that we desired Titus, that as he had begun, so he would also finish in you the same grace also. Therefore, as you abound in everything, in faith and utterance and knowledge and in all diligence and in your love to us, 
See that you abound in this grace also. I speak not by commandments, but by occasion of the forwardness of others and to prove the sincerity of your love. In verse 6, we learn Titus has been sent to the church at Corinth in order to help with this collection. But look at how Paul words it. He wants Titus to help finish in you the same grace also. Right, well, what's he mean, the same grace? Well, remember up in verse 1, as he introduced the Macedonian churches as an example, he said their example is primarily a sign of God's grace to them. And now here's the challenge, right? Corinth, is God's grace to you going to be expressed in this same grace through you? Right, and, and he's not done. Like, Paul's not stupid. I think he knows how to use a little bit of flattery, although it's sincere. In verse 7, he knows how to use a little bit of flattery. He says, you abound or you excel in everything. And he makes a list in faith and speech and knowledge and diligence or eagerness, even in love. So see that you excel in this grace also. Not because you have to, verse 8. Not because of commands, but because of the forwardness of others. Now, it's, it's sort of unfortunate that the same word doesn't get translated the same way here. In verse 7 and 8, Paul is using the same Greek word, spude, which means it's diligence in verse 7 or it's forwardness in verse 8. It essentially means eagerness or earnestness. Right? These poor churches were eager to help. And Paul says, you excel at eagerness. So are you willing to put your eagerness to the test against theirs in order to test the sincerity of your love? It's quite a challenge. The churches in Macedonia were used as an example of Christian giving. And now Paul issues a challenge that says, are you ready to put yourself to that test? Y'all, the challenge is here for us too. We just read the example and saw how those churches in Macedonia gave generously as an expression of God's grace, gave beyond what was comfortable for them. They gave as as an expression of love and not law. They gave for the purpose of meeting the needs of other saints outside of themselves. They gave their lives wholly to the Lord Jesus, which enabled them to give financially in a generous way. And here we are, a wealthy church, certainly by the standards of Philippi or Thessalonica or even Corinth, are we ready to prove the sincerity of our love by giving with the same eagerness that we read about in the first five verses here? I don't have much more to say about Paul's challenge than that. Like the, the challenge is there. It's there for them, it's there for us. And yet, I fear that there are some of us who would hear this and still, just give me a number. As if it is about that. You don't get a dollar amount. You don't get a percentage. Frankly, you don't get off that easy. 
the quantity of the gift given matters less than the quality of the giver's heart. That's what you need to look at. Remember how Jesus described this, that there is a quality of heart that's more important than the quantity of the gift. In Luke chapter 21, him and his disciples are standing in the temple and they're watching men go by putting money into the the collection baskets, right? And those things made a great noise. So they would come along with their coins, clang, 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 you know? And they would put on a show. And then as they stand there, there is this poor widow woman who comes up, apparently embarrassed, has two mites, the tiniest of coins, and she puts them in. And Jesus looks at his disciples and says, the truth is this poor woman just put in more than all of them put together. Well, did she really? (laughs) She only put in two coins. Point being, it's not about a number. God's judging your heart. And when you sit down to write your check, when you, when y'all always make it personal to me, I need this. When I sit down to write my family's check, it's right that God judges my heart as I do that. We have to conclude soon. I know amen to that, right? I'm thankful for what Paul says next. The first five verses, it says five aspects of Christian giving from a good example. And then verses six through eight, he issues a challenge of whether or not we'll follow that example. And then in verse nine, for anybody who really needs a proper perspective, he describes Christian giving based on the supreme example. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you, through his poverty, might be rich. In verse 1, he started with God's grace toward, right? God's grace toward, and then by means of that, through the churches of Macedonia. In verses 6 through 8, he challenges the church at Corinth to excel in that grace also. And now in verse 9, the ultimate example of grace is, is brought into the argument to essentially end the argument. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Christian giving begins and ends with Jesus Christ himself. Though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you, through his poverty, might be rich. Now, you know, the Lord of glory laid in a a filthy animal trough, raised in poverty, ministered to others even though he didn't have a place to lay his own head, right? There's that poverty, but that poverty Jesus experienced as a lack of money. Paul's not describing here Jesus' poverty simply in terms of money. Because if that's what Paul intended, then the promise is, you know, the sacrifice of Jesus promises that you will be rich. 
Now, the poverty Paul means here is suffering the loss of everything. It is the poverty of giving everything. The the Son of Heaven humbled himself to be a man. Not only that, but a servant. Not only a servant, but crucified like a criminal. He was despised and rejected and sorrowful and disregarded and ridiculed and betrayed until the point where he took our sin onto himself so even that his loving father who was so pleased in him would not look at him. He gave everything in order to give us the eternal riches of glory in him. This absolutely belongs in the discussion of generosity and Christian giving. Seeing the good example of the Macedonian churches, that's encouraging. But knowing the supreme example of our Lord Jesus, y'all, that's the end of the debate. Paul doesn't just do this once, just so you don't misunderstand. Paul's not going to say this only once. As the argument continues over into chapter 9, this is where he ends there as well. In chapter 9, verse 15, you'll see he ends this all by going, thanks be to God for his unspeakable, that is his indescribable gift. Right? All of Christian giving comes down to God's giving. God's right to judge our hearts in this. Christian giving begins and ends with whether or not you value the ultimate gift of Jesus Christ himself. When you purpose in your heart to give, we have to ask ourselves, what is it that we're holding back from the one who gave everything for us.